Welcome to episode five of the Green Podcast. My name is Justin Clark. And in this episode, I speak to Chris Kirsten of the Savory Institute. Chris has a background as a holistic farmer. And in this interview, we talk about farming methods that are beneficial to the environment and can actually be used to undo a lot of the damage that we've already done to the environment. Before I take you to our conversation, I want to give you a quick overview of the carbon cycle, which I think will help to put certain parts of our conversation into context. We humans are constantly blaming ourselves for dumping carbon into the atmosphere, primarily through the burning of fossil fuels, and that contributes to climate change, and that is certainly a problem. But I think a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that nature itself dumps a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. For example, billions of tons of carbon are released every year into the atmosphere from the oceans, and microbes in the soil also release billions of tons of carbon every year into the atmosphere. But that's actually not a problem because natural processes also take carbon out of the atmosphere, so there's a balance. For example, photosynthesis in plants removes carbon from the atmosphere. The phytoplankton in the ocean also help to remove carbon from the atmosphere. There's more to the carbon cycle than that, but the point I'm trying to make is that there is a carbon cycle and that there's a natural balance between the amount of carbon being dumped into the atmosphere and the amount that is being taken out. We humans are upsetting that balance in two ways. First, we are burning fossil fuels and doing other things that dump more carbon into the atmosphere than can be taken out through natural processes. Second, and this is the point that's especially relevant to this podcast episode, we are reducing nature's ability to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And we're doing that by removing plants from huge areas of the Earth's surface. We're cutting down forests and we're turning grassland into deserts through harmful farming practices. So just to recap that, we're causing problems on both sides of the equation. We're dumping extra carbon into the atmosphere and we're reducing nature's ability to take carbon out of the atmosphere. What Chris and the Savory Institute are doing and what Chris himself did for years as a holistic farmer is to promote methods of farming that do not reduce nature's ability to remove carbon from the atmosphere or damage the environment in other ways, and do not turn the land into deserts, and are actually beneficial and can be used to undo a lot of the damage that we've already done. So with that, I hope I've piqued your interest. I hope you'll understand the context of our discussion a bit better. And here is my discussion with Chris Kirsten. Welcome to the Green Podcast. My name's Justin Clark, and with me is Chris Kirsten, who's the Director of Marketing and Communications at the Savory Institute, which promotes a method of holistic farming, which is apparently better for the animals, the land, and climate change. Chris, welcome to the Green Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get into the Savory Institute and what you are doing there and what the Institute does, I wanted to ask you about your background. When you first began your career, what type of work were you doing? Yeah, so um, in high school, I met the woman who later became my wife, and her family had a ranch. And I had grown up in the suburbs of Los Angeles, had no experience with agriculture or farming, and she kind of exposed me to this lifestyle that I just fell in love with. I loved working outdoors. I loved working with my hands. It was like this total epiphany for me. Felt like connecting back to roots that I didn't know that I had. You know, working with these, you know, big beastly animals and getting to know them and build a relationship with them. It was completely intoxicating. And so it took over my whole life. I was, you know, 17 years old then, 
And from then on, I've worked full-time in agriculture. I started running a ranch shortly after that. And then we actually, her and I started buying our own cows in high school together and continued to have our own herd until our kids were born. And then we were going to school full-time, had our first son, were working full-time, and then had our ranch, and something had to go. And so we ended up selling off our cow herd then, but I continued to work in, in agriculture from then forward. I ran a ranch in Northern California. It was 2,000 acres, and for seven years, I was the ranch manager there. And we had the largest old-growth planting of olives in North America. It was uh, 600 acres of 100-year-old olive trees. 200 were ours and 400 were the neighbors. And we grazed livestock in the orchards. So the sheep and the cows did all of the mowing. The goats did the pruning and handled invasive weeds and cleared riparian areas. And the chickens depugged and fertilized. In this process, we got more crops per acre. We used drastically less inputs. Everything was organic as a bare minimum, but everything, you know, if you're familiar with the term beyond organic, we were going beyond those things by using these synergistic mindsets and mimicking nature. And then we ran the farm with about six or seven people, typically year round, direct marketed everything ourselves. And the big kicker is we figure we were using somewhere between two thirds to 85% less fuel than we had prior to using animals that way in the orchards. So you had actually done it the traditional way, or maybe, I don't know if you call it traditional, but where you you mow with a tractor? Right. It was a 100-year-old farm, and so it had gone through every trend and, you know, it was kind of different style of farming over the years. And five generations of the same family had been on that land. And, yeah, for portions of its time, it was definitely run conventionally. And, you know, just the the savings and going out and mowing you do a tremendous amount of mowing in orchard work. And the alternative is to spray an herbicide. And so, you know, the farm always was a little bit more ecologically minded, even when it was the most conventional. And so they favored mowing and you just end up burning a lot of fuel and a lot of manpower, sending somebody out to go eight hours a day and mow and try to keep weeds down and things out of your trees. We had a lot of Himalayan blackberry there. It's a, it's an invasive that will climb up in the trees and, and literally choke them out. It's a, almost like a parasitic relationship. And, you know, you're constantly trying to keep that at bay. Same thing with wild grape. We had a lot of star thistle, and it just made it really tough on, on the orchard operation. And when we introduced the animals, they were the solution to all those things. A goat's favorite food happens to be Himalayan blackberry. They love poison oak. They love star thistle. And they don't like the food that you don't want them to eat? Yeah, you know, you keep them below the canopy, and so they, um, you know, you, they're not able to get up in the trees and eat the fruit. In an olive orchard, you actually want to kind of prune up the branches pretty high and get rid of suckers and things like that. You typically pay a hand crew to come in and take your suckers out, and the goats did all that for us, which was really cool. We also had stone fruits and citrus, and we ran livestock in there as well. We had about 50 acres of apricots, peaches, nectarines, and cherries, and then we had another 50 acres of mandarins, oranges, grapefruits, and lemons all kind of intermixed. And we could run the sheep in there and the chickens in there. The cows were a little bit too big, and the goats were pretty hard on those trees. And so if we did run them through there, we ran them through pretty fast, and we usually ran them along the edges to clear, you know, irrigation canals and things like that. But it was extremely effective when you start looking at nature's models, and no ecosystem on the planet is devoid of animal impact. Everything from the Arctic to the oceans to the grasslands to savannas, they all have animals, and animals play a role there. And so we wanted to mimic that, and so we were trying to make our orchard 
as much like a savanna as possible and really encourage the grasses to grow underneath, but then maintain them with this animal force that we had. And it just worked tremendously. And most farms do not operate that way. Is that correct? That's very far from, if you're going to talk about a conventional orchard or a vineyard, typically what you do is you plant the trees, you put in some sort of irrigation system to water those trees or vines. And then, you know, up until the last few years, the standard protocol was you wipe out everything underneath. You spray herbicide and you just want bare dirt underneath. We're seeing some resurgence where people are at least letting the grass grow, get some soil cover. They're seeing benefits from increased organic matter, soil cover, water infiltration. And so they've taken the step to it, at least let some grass grow. But then they're doing what that farm used to do and they're mowing all the time, which then becomes pretty expensive from a fuel and labor standpoint. So we decided to take it a next step further and say, how would nature manage this? And then you really just become a conductor. You're up in front of the orchestra and you're really conducting the big, large movements. And then you really let the minutiae and the micromanagement go by the wayside. And that's very hard for farmers. Farmers by nature, you're really trying to create an ecosystem. And the norm in human behavior is to try to micromanage that as much as possible. And at some point, you have to let go and say, you know, Nature's smarter than I am. And as soon as you kind of make that admission, it's kind of the first step, you know, and kind of a 12-step program almost. But it's that first step that you kind of take your hands off and go, okay, I'm trying to make a living here. I'm trying to provide healthy food for people in the community, but nature is smarter than I am. So how can I follow that wisdom and allow this to happen in a way that I still accomplish my goals that I'm looking for in my life? And what were the benefits? You mentioned, I think, increased output, less fuel that you burn. What about profitability? Yeah, we saw huge increase in organic matter in the soil. Water infiltration went up, which means that you you end up using less if you're buying water or pumping water for irrigation. And then you get those more crops per acre. So, you know, on a conventional farm, if I've got an acre of, let's say, almonds or almonds, depending on where you are, those almonds just produce almonds. That's it. So you get one crop one time per year, and one paycheck. And then the rest of the year, you've got maintenance and expenses. And so when you start adding other things onto that land, let's say now I've got almonds and I'm also grazing sheep, and then when the sheep move out, I've got chickens there. So I might have now a wool crop, I've got a lamb meat crop, I've got eggs, and I've got chicken meat. And now I've got five crops on one acre that I'm increasing production on. I'm seeing the quality of my almonds go up, like in our fruit, we actually would see BRICS levels go up, and BRICS is a, a soluble sugar measurement. They use it a lot in the wine industry, and we would see BRICS levels go up by 10 to 20% if the chickens had been through in the last year. That's a saleable difference. I can now command a premium at the farmer's market or the grocery store or wherever I'm going because that product is of higher quality, while at the same time, I've now got chicken to sell, and then I've got a more stable cash flow season rather than a big glut of money that comes in all at once that then I've got to manage and budget that out through the rest of the year. Now I've got income coming in from multiple harvest times throughout the year. I might harvest those chickens in June and then I might collect those. I might get fruit in the summertime and then I might shear sheep in the fall and sell that wool. And then I might harvest lamb in early spring. And so now you've spread that out I and mean, you get a lot more resilience out of that. So we definitely saw profit go up and profit sometimes can is our only indicator that we look for in businesses. And even just taking it a step further to cash flow, 
many businesses die from cash flow shortages, not from profit. If they could survive those few months, particularly in agriculture, if they could survive those few months, often they can be a profitable business. It's just they don't often have the cash flow to get there. And you'll see many family farms go out of business for reasons along those lines. So yeah, we definitely saw profits go up, but I think we saw a lot more stability come into the picture as well, which was in some ways a bigger benefit. So from how you're describing it, it sounds like there's a lot of benefits, not many downsides. Why are more firms not using those methods? Yeah, I think uh, anytime you have a paradigm shift, a major difference in the way things are done, it's scary. Farming intrinsically is hard enough. It's a high risk, low profit margin kind of by nature is the way that it's designed in our current economy. And you start telling people that they're going to also have to be creators of something new and different, and they're going to have to figure out what works for them and their family and their piece of land and move away from this kind of formulaic farming that we do through most of the world now. And it gets scary. You know, there is no recipe, and that's the hardest part for humans love to find patterns and things and replicate those patterns. And when you realize that you've got your own context, you've got your own family issues, your own social issues, your own employee issues, you've got your piece of land as individual to you. It's got its own microclimates different than the neighbors, and you have your own different resources to use. And then you've got different financial issues than your neighbors. All of a sudden, it's like it's hard to just pick something up and replicate it and do that and say, okay, it's going to work magically for me. You've got to kind of create that and make it happen on your own, and it becomes where the art and science kind of come together. There certainly is a, a science of ecology and biology and agriculture, and then you have to couple that with your own style and your own resources, and kind of it feels a little bit like recreating the wheel, and it takes years to fine-tune. And so in some ways, it's a more mentally and even spiritually challenging project but the benefits are definitely there. And so it's just getting people to overcome some of those hurdles and see the differences. I see. You have a YouTube video where you explain that at some point you went and worked on a feedlot for a week and it changed your perspective. What did you learn there? Yeah, initially when I started in agriculture, I was very conventionally minded. I used to read a, a newspaper called the Western Livestock Journal, which is like the Wall Street Journal for you know cowboys. And I would read it cover to cover weekly, and I could tell you most of the time what you know corn was trading for. I could tell you what the Pacific Rim market was looking for and steers and whether it was upward trending or downward trending. I could tell you what Brazil was doing. I was very in tune to what was going on in this kind of larger world of commodity economics and agriculture. And you know, in this is something people miss a lot in chickens and swine. Those animals in the conventional industry. If you go buy them at any supermarket, they're raised in the same building pretty much their whole life. So they start in that building, they're born there, they're raised up to harvest weight, and then they're usually shipped to a plant to be slaughtered and then cut and wrap. And the difference in cattle is that the animals don't tolerate feedlot conditions for as long for their whole life, like a chicken or a pig would. And so we still have this very decentralized system where family ranches raise, they have a cow-calf operation, which means they have mother cows, those calves are born each year, and then those calves are sold off to usually an intermediate feedlot and then later to a finishing feedlot. Sometimes it's the same operation. It depends on the part of the country and what's uh, around there. So it's still these very spread out families that are raising these animals and then selling them off. Well, those family ranches are still very much grass-based. They don't usually have a feedlot there. They're usually feeding very little 
to almost no grain. They might feed some hay, depending on seasonality issues, but it's very different than what we think of when we think of CAFO or feedlot agriculture. And then that animal gets about six to 10 months of age, and then they'll get sold off, and then they'll go to a feedlot, and they'll spend the last three to six months of their life there, get finished and then slaughtered, and then end up in the industrial kind of meat conventional stream. And so I worked as a cow-calf operator, but I was very conventionally minded, like I was saying. And so I worked on this family ranch, and we had about 70 mother cows, and then we would get all our calves together, and once a year we would sell them, and they would go to the auction yard, and then we knew that eventually they'd end up down at a feedlot. And uh, a friend of mine said, hey, I've got a job down at a feedlot over in Modesto. Why don't you uh, Why don't you come down and help me for a couple of days? And I said, okay, cool. And so I went down, and it was intended just to be a, a few-day thing, and I, I went down there. And everything in my knowledge of agriculture told me this is one of the most advanced technological state-of-the-art feedlots probably in the world should be a poster child for good agriculture. And, you know, as I spent a couple of days there, I just kept thinking, you know, I didn't see any PETA-level atrocities of animals being abused or even, you know, up into their waste and manure. It was very clean. The trucks came couple times a day and refilled the bunks with hay and grain. And I just didn't enjoy my time there. I thought, you know, it's dusty and it's crowded and it's loud. And as we were running animals through the facilities there, we were running some animals through a squeeze shot shoot through the corrals. You know, the workers... What does that mean? What, what's a, squeeze? Um, a squeeze shoot is um, it's a, a mechanism designed to hold an animal while you're going to give it shots or do any doctoring or things like that. So it's basically a, a little alley they walk into, and then the machine tucks against them. It's not rough or anything like that, but it, it holds them. And then while it's holding them, then you can give them a shot or do whatever you need. Because, you know, if you've got a 1,200-pound animal, they're hard to restrain in other ways. And so, you know, I'm watching the workers, and the workers have no relationships with these animals. They don't seem to show any care. Again, they're not being mean to them, but it was so different than the life I had back home where I was at that time working for this family ranch and we were all 100% grass-based up until the point that these calves get sold off and then go into the feedlot system. And I thought, you know, I just don't really want to be here and I don't think the animals really want to be here. This certainly isn't the life that I'm excited to send them off to after I've raised these babies and cared for their mothers. And I just it just really changed my outlook on agriculture from that point on. And I remember every night as I went to bed, I couldn't get the sound of buzzing flies out of my ears. You know, they weren't there. We were back home kind of a thing. And just the sound of flies all day had stuck and played so long that I couldn't. It's kind of like when you get off a boat and you have sea legs. I couldn't get that sound out of my ears. And so I just thought, there's got to be something different. And at that point, I read a book by uh, Joel Salatin. It's a Polyface Farms. He was the farmer featured in Food Inc. He's written about a dozen books now. I just got a new one coming out soon. But one of his earliest books was You Can Farm. And it was all these ideas of how animals can be worked together symbiotically into either a farming system or even if you're just doing grass or then like I did later in my career into an orchard and how they could work together in symbiotic ways by mimicking nature. And you could get a lot more productivity out of it. And the animals would never have to leave the farm. You could actually raise them all the way until their maturity and then butcher them and sell them to your local community. And it was everything that I thought was possible, but nobody in my circle around, you know, my sphere of influence was doing this. And so 
it wasn't long after that that he actually, Joel Salatin, came to my town. And this is about 15 years ago, and I met him in person. And this is before Joel was famous. Joel now commands, you know, crowds all over the world. I actually just put on an event in London, and we had him come and speak there. And it was, it's amazing. He's a rock star now. But then he was still specific, you know, kind of specifically speaking to farmer groups. Uh, consumers hadn't heard of him yet. And it changed my life. You know, I, I sat there for eight hours and I listened to him talk about all the different things he was doing on his farm, you know, everything from rabbits. And at that point he was even playing with, he had, uh, he had some aquaculture going on and gardening. And then he had, you know, chickens, the chickens follow the cows and they scratch the manure pads and get the fly larva out. And then it's easier for the soil to absorb the manure. And, you know, he did turkeys and ducks and all these different things all dovetailed together in this way that they actually complemented one another. And I thought, God, this is what I want to do with my life. And that was kind of that pivot point. It was shortly after that that Joel and a few others said, you need to figure out who Alan Savory is and what he's doing. And that's who I work for today. Alan Savory is the creator of Holistic Management, which is kind of, it's a decision-making framework that helps people plan for triple bottom line results from the beginning. So how do we make sure that the decisions we make are socially economically and environmentally sound from the to begin with then from there we say okay whatever decision we're going to make let's assume that we're wrong and if we're wrong where would the first place we would see it be and so then we're constantly monitoring against that to say okay where would we see kind of the chink in the armor here if we made the wrong decision oh looks like we're not getting the results that we thought we would okay how do we replan and go back and really truly make sure we're getting those triple bottom line results so you know i started following alan's work at that point, I started working on the orchard, and that's where we had the stone fruits, the citrus, the olive trees. We produced olive oil, and then we did grass-fed beef, lamb, goat, chicken, and then eggs. And we were just starting to get into to ducks and geese. And the family there, I was uh, running that ranch, and I was a partner on the operation. And the family decided they needed to scale back and semi-retire, and they really kind of wanted to turn that property into more of a retreat. And so at that point, I checked in with the Savory Institute and said, hey, I'm looking to leave my farm job here. Would you guys have any openings? And they said, yeah, we have a marketing position open and we think you'd be ideal for it. So I interviewed a few times. And now for the last two years, I've worked for the Savory Institute. And I get to travel around the world with Alan Savory and, and meet farmers all over the world that are doing the same stuff. So it's been an exciting ride, to say the least. I first found out about the Savory Institute myself when I saw Alan's TED Talk last year. And the basic idea, the way I understand it, is that by doing farming the way you guys recommend, like too much of the world is turning to desert because of conventional farming practices. And that can be undone by doing farming the way that you recommend doing it. And that helps climate change because it restores the plants that pull the carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah, so basically you've got, if you think of a grassland, we humans tend to kind of homogenize everything and go, okay, well, that's just grass. But to an animal that eats grass all day long and lives on it, there's tons of different species out there. In an ideal world, hundreds of different species, maybe even thousands of different species of grass out there. And each of them kind of do a different thing, and they also taste different. And so what we've done in agriculture is we'll take a paddock and we'll fence it off, and we try to keep the predators out, and then we'll put livestock in there, and we'll just kind of let them go free choice. And they just live in that pen their whole life, and kind of eat the grass that's there. Well, if you're the grass plant, and you're kind of hanging out there, and a cow comes and bites your solar collector, your leaf, you're damaged. 
what are you going to do? What the grass plant does is it actually takes soluble sugars from down in its roots. The process of photosynthesis, it takes carbon out of the air, it mixes it with water, H2O, hydrogen plus two oxygen, and it makes a carbohydrate. So from the carbon dioxide in the air and the H2O in the soil, it makes carbohydrate, so that's a sugar, and then it, it releases that leftover oxygen from both those two molecules back into the atmosphere. That's a, a fantastic process. We want that to happen as much as possible because now we're taking atmospheric carbon out of the air, we're putting it into the soil where it forms organic matter from those sugars, and that organic matter holds tremendous amounts of water in addition to being a fertility source for other plants. And so we want that to keep happening. But now this bugger cow just came in and just bit the solar collector and it stopped that process from happening. And so what the plant does is it takes sugar from out of its roots and it lets a little bit of that root die off, or called sloughing, and then it takes that sugar and it regrows, turns that into work, and it, it regrows that blade of grass. And so now that plant is sitting there and it's tall. And if the cow is still hanging out in that pen the next few days, she'll come back and bite that blade of grass again. And we've broken what we call the law of the second bite. So that means that those sugar reserves that the plant has stored up, they're not still there. And so now that plant gets what we call overgrazed. And when it's overgrazed, now it's much harder for it to grow that blade of grass back. If it gets bit a third time, chances are that plant's going to die. If what we do in modern agriculture where we allow animals to sit in the same pen forever and ever and they just keep grazing their favorite species of plants, what happens is is those species all die out. And then what we're left with is just undesirables, the things that the, the cows don't really want to eat. It's not their first choices to eat. And so then those species thrive and the ones that are palatable and more nutritious die off. And eventually you get bare patches in the soil to where there's no species that can survive there. The animal impact is too heavy for too great a time, and we're seeing overgrazing. What we propose as part of holistic management at a tool we call holistic planned grazing is what you do is you actually manage your moves. You take a, your piece of ground and you say, okay, these are the resources I have to work with. What if we divided this up into little cells and we had a high animal impact, but we move the animals very frequently. So it's called high-intensity, short-duration grazing. And so let's say we go into a pen, and maybe we're there for two days, maybe three. The animals go in, and they eat all the grass that's in front of them, and then they move on because we make them move on. We move them to the next paddock, to the next cell. And now we let that original paddock that they've grazed, we let it recover. And how long does it take to recover? So that will be extremely dependent on the place. And that's actually the first thing we plan for in holistic planned grazing is we plan for the recovery. So it'll depend on what growing season you're in, and it will depend on what part of the world you're in and what kind of climate you have. So it could be as short as 30 days, could be as long as two years. And so you'll have to build your plan for that accordingly. So, so if it were to be, say, just for an example, three months, and you said you would leave the herd in the one pen for two to three days, does that mean that you need a huge amount of land? Like you need basically, I guess that'd be 30 different pens to move them to. Yeah, you don't need a huge amount of land. You need a huge number of pens. And so it's all scalable. It's completely independent of how much land you have. What we typically find is that on most pieces of property, they're understocked because in their initial equation where they're having so few animals, but they're there all the time, the land can't support very many because it's struggling, it's suffering, it's dying. In our system, where we build the rest back in and we allow the, the plants to rest, we can usually double your stocking density or your stocking rates in the first year, and at the same time, we'll actually see the grass just explode. 
We've got all sorts of examples. If you go to our website, saverinstitute.org, or even just Google Holistic Management, you'll see people all over the world are doing this, and the land just totally recovers, really responds in that first year, and then continues to go upward in production from there. So you need a lot of paddocks, a lot of cells. And so we plan for recovery. The animals are constantly moving. So when you get the animals bunched, their behavior changes. If you have one or two or three animals, they go in and they pick their favorite thing and then their next favorite thing and then their next favorite thing. If you go in and you have, let's say, hundreds of animals in an area, they don't do that. Their behavior changes because you're taking that choice away from them to just select the items that they like the most. We call it uh, you know, picking the candy or the donuts out of the pen. They're going to take everything because there's competition there. And so if you're waiting to get your favorite item, there's a good chance you're going to go hungry. And so they go in and they mow evenly. And this is what we see in nature. We see huge herds of ruminants, of animals with a rumen, a grazing animal. You know, you see this all over Africa. We used to have it here in North America with the bison to where literally millions of animals might be in the same herd together, but they're constantly bunched and moving. And that bunched and moving came from predator pressure. And so what we're trying to do here in this style of grazing is mimic that predator pressure. And so we keep those animals bunched, they go in, they evenly impact that land, and then we move them to the next cell. And with simple math, you can design a system that says, okay, if I need 90 days recovery, I need this many cells and I need to wait this long before I get back. And so you can change the size of the pen. And what's really changed that is we have this modern tool of solar-powered electric fences. So you need virtually no resources there. It's not like you have to have hookup to power. You just need a good water source, and then you use either polytape or wire, and then you've got this solar-powered electric fence. And usually a single strand of that will hold cattle in, two strands if you've got calves with them, and it's very simple to set up. There's a great video called Soil Carbon Cowboys that shows a really good example of setting this up and uh, how quickly it can be done and the type of production increases that you'll see just in the first couple of years. So. If you were to comp compare a farm that's using holistic methods like you just described as to a farm that's using traditional methods, you're saying that you would, you could graze even more animals on the same area of land if it's done correctly. How about comparing it to factory farms where there's, well, the, the cows are, or say a feedlot where the cows are in pens or very confined spaces, not using up very much land at all? Yeah, so... You know, that's, again, we kind of look at our human brains and how we see things. You look at that feedlot and you, and you can make the argument that, okay, this doesn't use very much land. Well, then you think of the resources that it takes to support that feedlot. It's a tremendous amount of grain that has to be grown off-site somewhere to where that's then mechanically harvested, both with petroleum and human labor, to go in and collect those resources. And then it goes into a truck to get shipped there. And then the feedlot takes it and they process it and they usually flake it or do whatever they're going to do. Then it goes out into the trucks and it feeds each animal in the bunks. And then now you've got such a concentration of animals that are stagnant, they never go anywhere, that now you run into positive nutrients that go to such high levels that they become toxic. And so all that manure and urine, which is a total boon to agriculture, everyone who has a backyard garden knows that you, know, you can use animal manure as a tremendous resource to help increase fertility in the soil. Well, now you get so much of that fertility that it goes to levels that are unsustainable and you actually have toxicity issues, particularly with nitrogen, but both in phosphorus and potassium as well, that now that all has to get hauled away and handled and treated. And it takes a huge amount of resource to do all this. And the only way that that, that works in our economy is because that 
that fuel and that grain are both subsidized from our government and governments around the world do the same thing. And so that makes that meat cheaper and more affordable. Whereas in our system, we're trying to build something that's in balance with the land that's there. And so we don't have these externalities that we're, that we're utilizing that in fact, everything comes from the land there. And as much as possible, we try to get to stay in that nutrient cycle. The only thing that's leaving is the meat. And, you know, it's interesting the way a, a cow's rumen work, very little of the meat and muscle that she grows, not very little, but not that much. I don't have a good solid number on that. I think it's uh, 40, 60%. But her rumen, basically, she feeds it grass. The microbes in her rumen break that down. It's kind of like a fermentation tank like you might have on your counter if you were going to make sauerkraut or like kimchi or something like that. The microbes are doing that work. And so the cow has a symbiotic relationship where she puts grass into her rumen, microbes break it down. The microbes get to eat, live their life cycle. Then when that grass passes to the next chamber of her stomach, a huge amount of those microbes go with it. Well, those microbes are a protein source. And so she's actually farming the microbes that become the protein that help her create the meat, milk, and a skeletal structure and everything else that makes up her body. And so not that much actually leaves the ecosystem of the land there. And instead, what comes out her backside, that manure, is probiotically rich that it's actually going to feed the soil microbes there and enhance that so that things break down in the soil at a faster rate as well. What are some of the main obstacles that you face when you are kind of try to spread this method of farming? I'm sure one of them is the subsidization of the grains. I'm sure the grain farmers are not going to like it if they lose their market. It's not so much the farmers that are upset that they're going to lose the market. The farmers want to grow what consumers demand. And so right now, consumers demand cheap and fast food. And so that's what farmers have been providing. And then the government exacerbates that with these subsidies, which then help make it cheaper. The farmers are pretty adaptive. They just usually want to keep their land and live their lifestyle. They're willing to do what the market demands. So the biggest battle right now is just to really get people engaged. You know, there's a great quote by a ecologist, Brock Dolman, that says, we're the most ecologically illiterate society of all time. And it's true. We're the, we're the least connected with our soil. We're very insulated in our big cities from where things actually come from and what it takes to produce them. And so I think one of the biggest challenges is probably consumers and making sure that we're not always making our choices just on cost alone, that these externalities we're going to have to pay for and our kids are going to have to pay for and that there's a better way out there. But in the short run, it might end up costing a little bit more on the upfront. In America, and I'm sure your listeners are international, but in, in the U.S. and in North America, I think we can probably include Canada in that, probably not Mexico, but we pay the lowest amount of our food dollar, you know, of our money goes to food. I think we're right at like 9 or 10%. And even for, you know, developed countries around the world, Europe, that's still the lowest in the world. And so, I, you know, there clearly are other models out there where people are paying more. And how do we make sure that, that more ends up being higher quality? You know, I think one of the first steps to that is is to make sure that you're buying grass-fed meat and then having a conversation with the rancher that's producing it of are they taking into account the environmental aspects, the social aspects, and the economic aspects together when they're doing this, have a conversation with them if they heard of holistic management, uh, how are they doing their rotational grazing, what types of things are they monitoring for? Are they monitoring for um, soil organic matter? Are they monitoring for water infiltration? Are they monitoring for biological diversity and wildlife? You know, and start having some of that that education process go back and forth where, you know, that consumer is demanding those things from the producer. And I think we'll see things change pretty fast. 
that does seem like to me like kind of a big hurdle if someone was in in a store and they saw two slabs of meat one which is significantly more than the other it seems difficult to pay for the more expensive one just because it's going to be better for the planet yeah it's a definite paradigm shift i think we have to start thinking about true cost accounting on our food and i think some of it's definitely going to come from we're going to need to see changes from government policy side alan savory's next book is specifically about how to form holistic policies and to have the least amount of unintended consequences as possible. You know, the, I don't think that there's, I don't think any of this really comes from bad people out there that are trying to, you know, wreck the next generation. I think it all comes from the way that we make decisions. And again, going back to holistic management at its core, it really is decision-making framework that can be applied from everything in the household to any industry. And, you know, it's not like somebody started grain subsidies at the government because they, you know, wanted people to get obese and they wanted to do environmental damage. But those are unintended consequences of that when you're just looking at something kind of in a singularity and go, okay, how can we produce the most amount of calories for the cheapest amount possible? And we'll create grain subsidies. And, you know, you look at that policy and we've seen all the negative impacts from it, but it was probably made from good intentions. And so we've got to start shifting the way that we think about these things as a species in order to prevent serious disaster. You know, climate change, we didn't talk about much, but, you know, as the grass is sequestering that carbon out of the air to make those sugars in the soil, you're taking something that's a liability to our planet, to where that carbon in the air is a greenhouse gas. It holds on to heat from the sun, but in the soil, it's a source of fertility, and it holds on to water in the soil, and it makes soils more productive. You do that over and over and over again, and you can take that carbon out of the air and put it into the soil. We need a 1% increase in soil organic matter across farmland and we'll mitigate climate change back to pre-industrial levels. That's it, just 1%. That's work done by Rattan Lal at Ohio State University. It's um, very, very doable. We just need to change the way that we farm. One of the things that I missed in talking about the grasses is, you know, why not just grow grasses and leave the animals out of the picture? The interesting thing about grasses, particularly in climates that have seasonal humidity, places that don't have year-round rainfall or humidity in the atmosphere there is those plants go through a die-out phase. And when they die, they stand there. This is typically places that have annuals or perennials that go into dormancy. When they die, they just sit there. And when they sit there, they just oxidize. They chemically oxidize and they shade out future growth. And there are places on the planet, I've been to places in Africa that have just huge expanses of dead skeletons of plants. They're not growing. They're not doing anything. They're just sitting there and they shade out all future grass growth that comes in there. And without the impact of animals to either knock down that oxidized material or in a functioning system to eat that material and turn it into food for them to basically provide the role of biological decay instead of chemical decay, then that'll just sit there for decades and never do anything. And that's when the land starts to desertify. And so we need animals and impact. And again, going back to the point that every ecosystem on the earth uses animals, it would make sense in our food production that we would follow that same pattern and use animals and plants together synergistically in a way to produce more crops for less inputs. But even in that, in most economies in the world, not all, but in most economies in the world, you're going to see some costs go up because the subsidies that are out there right now are so large 
that the cost of the consumer is going to go up some. What do you suggest for places like Canada, which are covered in snow for a large part of the year? Yeah, there are multiple different strategies for places that have extreme weather. And one option is to build back in migration. And one of the ways that we do that is we'll use animals that are what we call stalkers or finishers. And so, you know, a cow-calf operation, like I was talking about before, where the mom cows have the babies, instead of waiting when they're, you know, six to 10 months old and shipping them to a feedlot, we can take those animals and we can ship them to another piece of property and have them graze there. And so we can do what we call seasonal grazing or, you know, a stocking operation to where you'll go in and let's say, you know, you've got six months of the year that are snow free. Well, let's just graze those six months of the year. And then those animals are then harvested. And then the animal could be, then that land gets covered in snow through the fall and the winter and the spring. So we do that a lot in our northern properties in Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, to where we'll go in and just have a stocking operation. And that's common. It's done all over the world. There's people in Australia that do that. There's, you know, and they're avoiding heat, the other extreme. And so you can do seasonal grazing. Not everything has to, not everything always has to be contained 100% of the time on that property. Because again, if we're going to mimic nature, migration was part of that pattern. And so there's other strategies of, you know, how you winter animals in a way that's more nature-based. You can go to bison are better at getting through the snow and still grazing underneath there. When they do that, they create habitat for other species to come in and graze behind them because they've cleared the snow away. Joel Salatin used an interesting method to where he butchers all his all his steers and then takes the mother cows, puts them in the barn, and then every day he puts down a fresh layer of straw and then he puts corn and then he puts another fresh layer of straw. And so the animals come up and they they don't go after the corn, they go to the feed bunk for their hay, and they compact the straw and the corn while they also urinate and defecate on it. So at the end of the season, he has this huge pile of straw, corn, manure, and urine sitting there. He turns pigs in in the springtime, and the pigs go in, and they turn that whole pile looking for the fermented corn in the pile. And as they're doing that, they basically turn into compost because they're turning the pile for him. And over the course of a couple of months, they turn it enough that it has a chance to activate with the air and the microbes in there break it down and then they're, they have compost when they're done. So there are multiple strategies to do that. I see. Um, and I'm wondering, would it work, like if the goal was to reduce climate change, to make life better for the animals and for the environment, what would you say to someone who proposed that the whole world start eating either vegetarian or vegan and rather than using livestock to mimic nature, actually just restore nature itself. So, for example, in North America, that might mean restoring the bison and the wolves. And Yeah, so that was actually Alan's initial approach, was to go in and just use game to do this. What he found throughout Africa and other places in the world that he was, he was doing a lot of work in South America then, too, is that those animals are extremely hard to manage from a, a human scale. They don't herd as well. They don't respond to electric fences the same way and broken enough of the cycle that it's really hard to build predator pressure back in and to have these large scale migrations. I mean, can you imagine if a million herd bison were trying to make their way from Canada down into Colorado? How would that work with all the freeways that we've put in, all the towns that are there, you know, all the development that's happened? It would be very challenging to do that on a global scale. 
the way that it needs to be done. When you do it on a micro scale, it's going to require more human intervention, and those animals are less domesticated to be able to do that. And so in all of our goals as we do this in holistic management, we want to see as much habitat restoration as possible for the wild animals that we have, but we can use the tool of domesticated animals as a catalyst for that and at the same time also make a profit from that and support families that are on the property. Huh, that's interesting. I happen to eat vegan, uh, well, vegan plus fish myself, so I don't eat any meat. And it's prim- well, it's because I, I find it hard to justify ethically looking at what life is like for the animals. But I'm thinking that if, I mean, if it was a choice between no one eating any meat at all and the world becoming destroyed through climate change or we all eat meat and restore plants to the desertifying areas of the world and prevent climate change, maybe that's a valid justification. Yeah, so from our perspective, people eating the meat doesn't really matter. I think it's a it could potentially be a wasted resource if we don't. But again, going back to the point that I, I think the cycle is broken enough that we can't just, you know, throw a bunch of pieces in the puzzle and say, okay, we've got these migrating herds and there's not really enough predators anymore and, and we've broken the migration patterns, but somehow it'll work itself out. It's not. We have to find a way that we provide that biological decay. That's the really crucial part that the animals actually provide an impact through their hooves and then they actually remove that dead decaying material and then it decays through the microbes in their gut and then comes out their backside probiotically rich. Without that process in place, then the system degrades. And so, you know, grasslands need to be grazed as much as grazers need to eat grass. It's a, you know, we can see that pattern in nature over and over again where there's these symbiotic codependencies, and this is one of them. And, you know, whether those animals get eaten by humans or not comes down the the line. There are many vegans and vegetarians that support our work that still, for whatever reason, choose not to eat meat in their own life, and we're fine with that, totally support that. The key is that we understand the biological factors at play here and that grass can sequester huge amounts of carbon. And what it does different than other plants is it stores it below the soil, whereas trees and forests, they store so much of that carbon above the soil, which makes it at risk for fire. Or if we, as humans, use it and cut it down, turn it into stick lumber for building homes and things like that, a lot of that carbon re-releases back into the atmosphere when that tree dies. So we want to store as much of that carbon as we can below the soil, make those soils more rich and fertile, and then grow as much more wildlife as we can. Life begets life, and so we want to keep that process in an upward spiral. That's very interesting. A few quick rapid-fire questions before we we wrap up. First, what is next for you and the Savory Institute? So we, the Savory Institute, we are doing what we call a hub strategy to where, you know, rather than go into places around the world and say, listen, you know, take this formula and do it, and here's how it works – is we have people that come to us and say, hey, I want to start something in my own community. How can I do it? We provide them with the tools. We give them curriculum. We give them the uh, technological platform. We provide them with everything that they need to then take it to their local region. And so this is going to look very different in Africa versus South America versus Australia. And so they take it in their own context, and they become kind of that liaison for us to a local region. And so we now have 20 of these hubs around the world, soon to be 30. We're just getting ready to announce the 2015 new hubs. We grow by 10 per year. And it's kind of an entrepreneurial incubation program to where 
we help them get a business plan started. Some of them are nonprofits that just do this on the side. Others are maybe a ranch that's taking this on. And then they become this training center in their community. And they have a demonstration site, which is usually a ranch. And we give them all the tools they need to kind of get that going and mobilize. And so right now we've got centers in Kenya, two in Kenya, actually, Ethiopia, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Turkey, Sweden, Spain, Chile, Argentina, four in Mexico, and then six in the U.S. We've got Washington, California, Colorado, Arizona, Maryland, and New York. And like I said, we're just getting ready to announce the next 10, and we'll see even more diversity in there. I think we've got one in Canada that's coming on board. So basically these places they do, they'll help the ranchers, one, get the training. How do we set up a grazing plan that's appropriate? that makes sure that you've got that social, environmental, and economic components all together as one piece. And then they'll do monitoring, so they'll help them make sure that we're seeing increases in those key factors that we're looking for. One of the big ones is biological diversity, both in the plant species and the local animal species. And then they'll do things like help them get involved in carbon markets, if that area has that. Some areas are starting to develop water markets. And then they'll do things like market aggregation. So like Patagonia Inc., the clothing company, they buy all their wool from our hub in Argentina. Argentina, the hub there is impacted something like 6 million acres, and they're working with hundreds of farmers, and they've created this market cooperative to where if you meet certain standards in your land or generation, if we've hit certain benchmarks, then you're eligible for marketing opportunities. And so they collect all the wool from those different farms, and then Patagonia says, hey, I'll come in and pay a premium for that wool, and then we'll put it into our clothes, and we'll share that story that this is not only sustainable, but this is regenerative, that we actually can measure the differences in the positive direction on the land here, and consumers would then pay a premium for that. So we're trying to create similar deals like that all over the world all the time through these various hubs. This is kind of jumping back to something we discussed earlier. I was just thinking while you were talking back to the subsidies, and I wanted to ask if these grain subsidies were totally removed, would that cause the price of factory farmed or feedlot beef to increase to the point where it was equal to or higher than grass-fed beef, or does it not? Does that not bring it all the way? I think it would that plus fuel because I think that in our system we use a lot less fuel. And, you know, you could make quite an argument that, you know, we don't pay the true cost of petroleum products in any country, but particularly in North America. Yeah, I think the grain subsidies would definitely take it up quite a bit if they were removed. But I think the fuel ones would as well. So just a couple last questions. One, if you could convince everyone on the planet to take one action to reduce their impact environmentally, what would that be? Yeah, that's such a hard one. We get asked that one all the time. You know, Alan really feels like our next big step that we have to take is really in how we form policies and a multitude of policies, not just singular ones like grain subsidies, but so many of our policies have single objectives in mind. And we think we address the cause and then we get all sorts of issues that arise that weren't thought of. And so how can we start making decisions in a way that really kind of look at the whole bigger picture? There's a guy who once said to us, he said, you know, we're in the heart of the information age, but holistic management is going to bring forth the decision-making age. And it doesn't, you know, we're so empowered by all the information that we have right now more than ever before. 
But if we don't know how to make good decisions from that, I'm not really sure that we've solved our problems. And so how do we start looking at decision-making differently in a way that we actually get the results that we're looking for that are good for everyone, that move us towards the type of life and lifestyle that we want? So I think some more pieces need to come in play for everyone to be able to get on board with that. But I don't think there's a silver bullet where if we just said every person on the planet starts eating this way or not using fossil fuels or spending their money differently or whatever is going to solve the issues that we have at hand that are plaguing our species. But I guess those may be some good first steps. You mentioned earlier that if people spend their money on food that was farmed holistically, right, that's kind of going to I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. I would definitely like to see people have more of a relationship with the land that supports them. And one of the greatest ways to do that is to have a relationship with the farmer who helps feed you and actually spend some time on the land that helps support you and growing the food that you're going to eat and make part of your body. So I think, yeah, food buying decisions are definitely in there. I think the more ecologically connective we can get and the more time we can spend on the land is probably one of the most valuable things that we can do as a species to really build the awareness needed to start thinking about things differently. All right. And if you could convince everyone on the planet to either read one book or watch one documentary, I know you've mentioned a few already. Is there one that stands out? Yeah, that Soil Carbon Cowboys is a really good entry-level one. We've got a... I think you said that's on YouTube? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. It might be Vimeo. That was made by uh, Peter Bick, who made the documentary a couple years ago called Carbon Nation. And his new pieces are focused specifically on what role livestock can play in carbon sequestration. It's a really powerful piece, the Soil Carbon Cowboys is. On our website, we also have a primer on holistic management, holistic planned grazing that's very good. Alan's book, Holistic Management, New Framework for Decision Making, is fantastic. It's a textbook you can get on Amazon anywhere. Yeah, I would definitely start with one of those. Uh, we have a new book out called The Grazing Revolution. It's an ebook through Kindle and all the others to carry it. But you can get that on Amazon also. That was co-produced with Ted, who Alan did the TED Talk with a couple years ago. The TED Talk's a great place to start, too. We've had all, real close to 3 million viewers on that. It's been one of the fastest-growing TED Talks. Alan's been invited back a couple times to speak again on updates, just based on the fact that it's been so popular. So, yeah, any of those is a great place to start. Okay. You listed off quite a few resources there, so I will include links to those on in the show notes on thegreenpodcast.com. And your website is savoryinstitute.com? .org. .org. Any of those will get you there. Okay. Well, Chris, thanks very much. I found this quite fascinating, and I've learned a lot. So thanks a lot for being on the show. All right. Thanks, Justin. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. And for everyone listening, visit thegreenpodcast.com to find out about past and upcoming episodes. And you can also find us on iTunes.